Hello, good afternoon, guys. Uh, I'm still uh, reading from, uh, from Stephanie Kelton's uh, The uh, Depths and Myths. I am still on uh, Chapter 5, I believe, and it's uh, in the, the Spectrum of Money, Monetary Sovereignty, on page 44. And that will be the section I'm reading from. Um, and it's almost halfway down the page. Um, it goes like, in short, just as Uncle Sam, budget deficit arises from the American businesses and households desires to accumulate a surplus of U.S. dollars, America's trade deficit arises from the rest of the world's desire to accumulate a surplus of U.S. currency. The global hunger for a dollar is largely why where we've been running a trade deficit nonstop for decades. In this regard, the United States does sit in a powerful position compared to the rest of the world for both goods and ill. Thanks to the U.S. dollar's unique role as a global reserve currency, Uncle Sam never has to borrow in anything but his own currency, and he doesn't even have to do that. This gives the U.S. something of an advantage, but it does not mean that the United States is the only country with the power to carry out its domestic policy agenda. Any country with a high degree of monetary sovereignty needs to pursue a domestic policy agenda aimed at keeping its economy operating at full employment. As we'll see, even developing countries can enhance their monetary sovereignty and open up enough policy space to allow them to pursue domestic full employment. Many advanced economies enjoy a high degree of monetary sovereignty. They have many, uh, they have many high value uh, added production sectors, a point we'll return to below. They boast enormous opportunities for those eager to invest in their economies, buying stocks, real estate, and more. Since investing in those domestic assets requires uh, obtaining the country's respective currencies, demand for their currencies remains high across the globe. In economic jargon, they have deep capital markets. Just as MMT argues that domestic demand for the U.S. dollar is driven by the need to pay federal taxes and this demand supports the dollar's value. The international need for investment assets drives demand for both the U.S. dollar and other major currencies, helping to stabilize their value. <coughs> Excuse me. Like the U.S., these other advanced nations float their currencies, meaning they don't try to tie the value of the currency to anything else. That way, you don't have to defend the peg by buying, selling, or borrowing currencies. They don't control. This is another reason they enjoy very high degrees of monetary sovereignty. Many countries weaken their monetary sovereignty by continuing to pay their currencies to the U.S. dollar. Examples, uh, Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, and Jordan are going further and use the U.S. dollar as their official domestic currency. Uh, also, see the example of Ecuador, Panama, and El Salvador. In both cases, making a, big, a much bigger effort to accumulate and stockpile dollars because of necessity. Pegging your currency can, only, can, can also worsen your uh, monetary sovereignty over time as your private sector grows 
increasingly accustomed to borrowing in the currency you're paid in. <clears throat> Meanwhile, governments themselves may have to keep deeper and deeper, um, deeper and deeper into U.S. dollar debt, which reduces the monetary sovereignty even further. Further down the spectrum, another choice that strips countries of monetary sovereignty is joining a currency union. Nations like France, Spain, and Italy, despite being advanced economies with deep capital markets, cannot operate as currency users, or sorry, issuers. That's because they are all members of the Eurozone, using a currency that only can only be issued by the European Central Bank. There, they, that relegates all Eurozone members to mere currency users. This point is crucial to understanding Greece's seemingly endless debt crisis, for example. Finally, at the opposite end of the monetary sovereignty spectrum from the U.S. are the power, poorer developing countries of Africa, Asia, and Latin America. We should close out this chapter by discussing their situations or situation in some detail because despite the damage done by trade policy, to the American working class, the United States is far from most abused victim of the moderate modern international trade order. Developing countries, uh, no, first of all, let me just kind of say this, out of the Brenton Woods into the free market trade location or portion of the, of the chapter. Developing countries, more or less by definition, don't have the diverse and mature industries that advanced developed countries do. Countries such as Bangladesh, Bangladesh, Vietnam, or Ghana generally have to provide the rest of the world with cheap manufacturing labor or natural resources like oil, metals, or minerals, and those export industries tend to dominate their economies. To get higher, to get high-tech and high-value items like computers, cars, medicine, or advanced tech manufacturing uh, robotic, developing countries have to import them from more developed countries or economic uh, economies. Many developing countries also lack the ability, uh, lack the ability, or have been told they don't have the ability to produce enough food, energy, and medicine to meet their own domestic demand. So, they rely on developed countries to supply them with imports of food, energy, and medicine. And as we've discussed, that they almost always need U.S. dollars to pay for these crucial imports. As MMT economist Fidel Kaboob has uh, argued that this position as the bomb of global supply chains brings fundamental economic problems, many of them arising from the historical legacy of colonization itself, exporting cheap labor and commodities while importing expensive high-value items tends to leave developing countries with perpetual trade deficits. The problem is that there isn't a robust, permanent appetite for developing countries' financial assets or real estate. Econ uh, economists say they, that they lack deep capital markets while investors will speculate in emerging markets buying financial assets denominating, uh, de denominated in a developing countries' local currency. They don't make the kinds of long-term investments they would allow developing countries to gain durable access to currencies like the U.S. dollar 
as long as the rest of the world refuses to accept the currencies of developing current countries and payment for critical, uh, critical imports, developing nations will be forced to borrow U.S. dollars and other foreign currencies they don't control. Not only does this undermine their monetary sovereignty, it can leave developing nations mired in a cycle whereby they sell domestic currency to, their, to get foreign currency they need, driving down the value of the domestic currency and making those critical imports more expensive, which can easily lead to import-led inflation and even political turmoil, or uh, as we've seen in Venezuela, Argentina, and in, in Professor, and in, uh, Professor Kabul's native Tunisia. Since less developed countries don't have advanced industries or deep capital markets, they're vulnerable to a wide variety of unpredicted outside risk. For example, dollar-starved economies after often, excuse me, often ex experience a burst of investment from speculative Western investors who swoop into a country uh, feverishly investing in those uh, economies and driving up the value of the local currency only to get cold feet and suddenly pull their cash back out, causing local currency to collapse, or maybe global demand for a country's key exports suddenly collapses, leaving the country scrambling to earn enough foreign currency to finance its import imports. That happened to Venezuela and Russia when the natural gas fracking boom in the U.S. drove oil prices sharply down. And it's what happened in Argentina when the price of soybeans uh, collapsed, depriving the country of a critical source of U.S. dollars. In the case of both investor uh, panic and market collapse, the bomb drops out of the developing country's currency, leading the, to inflation and upheaval. When outside events like these happen, even countries that were theoretically running sustainable economic policies can wind up in financial peril. Forced to renegotiate foreign denominated debt, seek aid from lenders like the IMF, or simply default because many developing countries run trade deficits or have debt denominated in U.S. dollar or other foreign country, uh, currencies, rather, they can get into real trouble when something compromises their ability to earn or borrow in unaffordable terms. Enough foreign exchange to finance their imports and repay their foreign debts. Countries with greater monetary sovereignty, the U.S., the U.K., or Australia, don't face the same risk. In fact, the U.S. dollar's role as a currency uh, hegemon means that the whole world is exposed to the United States' control over dollar interest. Um, decisions taken by the Federal Reserve can have profound consequences for developing countries, and yet countries often have few ways to defend themselves. For example, beginning in 1979, former President of Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker initiated a series of substantial interest rates hikes, believing that this was the only way to tame double-digit inflation that was roiling the U.S. economy. When that happened, Latin, Latin America countries that were indebted to the United States and Sub-Saharan Africa countries that were indebted to former European colonizers anyway, suddenly found themselves facing much uh, higher borrowing costs. They were stuck exporting so many 
low value added manufacturing to goods that but they were reliant upon those richer countries for more crucial imports. At the same time, rising interest rates in the U.S. raised the dollar exchange rate by stoking demand for U.S. investment and assets. This delivered a double gut punch to developing countries who not only saw the value of their currencies drop precipitously, but also faced borrowing costs on growing pile of debt denominated in foreign currency. In the end, Volcker's rate hikes drove many developing countries into crisis, fueling a rapid economic downfall from which some countries have yet to fully recover. Back when Bretton Woods was still in effect, the system established a host of international organizations including the IMF, the World Bank, and the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, now the World Trade Organization or WTO. Within the Bretton Woods system, these organizations focused on actively governing the conditions of trade trade America among countries. Excuse me. This involved a variety of tools like tariffs and capital controls aimed at keeping trade flows stable in national economic uh, economies at least somewhat isolated from one another. When Brenton Woods ended, the global institutions it created remained, but over time their governing philosophy shifted. The religion of free trade took over and the tariffs and capital controls were relaxed in the name of trade liberalization. Sorry. Um, uh, okay, kind of lost the train. <laughs> uh, okay, there we go. The Western elites decided that fully exposing developing countries to global trade and to in and out rushes of investor money would discipline their economies into becoming better. Uh, protectionism and government intervention became dirty words. The champions of this new framework insisted that free trade would eventually bring full employment and uh, harmonious, um, harmonious excuse me, trade relations across each participating country's econo uh, economies. Economic, economy, there we go. Nothing like that has happened, of course, the IMF, WTO and World Bank, often run by bankers and diplomats from wealthy countries, have no commitment to full uh, employment around the world. Instead, they tend to, recon to recommend a familiar package to developing countries hit by crisis, drastic cuts to government and expenditures, i.e. fiscal austerity and tight monetary policy, very high interest rates to raise the value of the currency and lure investors back, and of course, more free trade. They also frequently recommend that developing countries pay the value of their currency to a stronger currency like the euro, the yuan, or the U.S. dollar. This policy mix amounts, uh, mix amounts to recommending that developing countries forsake any effort to enhance its uh, monetary sovereignty. Whatever the intention, the actual results from this package are perverse. When countries sacrifice monetary sovereignty but cannot acquire sufficient foreign currency to defend the target exchange rate, the currency, pegs, the currency pegs collapse, potentially causing a downward spiral as governments, businesses, and even households 
cannot favorably convert domestic currency to repay to repay repay excuse me debts dominated or denominated excuse me in foreign currency well dominated too but anyway uh, hyperinflation can set in as the exchange rate plummets and the cost of crucial imports skyrocket in price then the recommended austerity and time monetary uh, monetary policy crush the domestic economy driving up unemployment and poverty all in the same all in the name of luring and another batch of western investors who would start the whole cycle over again and that's not all historically international uh, organizations like the imf have recommended that developing countries especially those who have achieved independence from colonial powers after World War II, focused on producing and selling just a few goods to richer countries. This suggestion comes from an idea that a 19th century uh, economic, uh, econ economist, David Ricardo, called comparative advantage. Essentially, Ricardo recommended that countries should specialize in producing whatever goods and services that are most adept and efficient at. But most, but many uh, influential economists take the idea of compar comparative advantage to extremes. For instance, they argue that developing countries should focus on what they can produce and mostly cheaping, cheaping, cheaply in the short term rather than developing new industries that would enhance the monetary sovereignty over time. In other words, international Western elites have told poorer countries they should not indulge in development strategies that focus on job creation, energy independence, or any goals on, on, uh, goals aside from specialized production and effect. It's a recommendation that keeps developing countries forever developing, never achieving the kind of advanced, diversified economics of the modern West. That recommendation is the opposite of the historic path taken by the United States, Japan, and most other powerful economics, or economies rather. They often focus on producing crucial goods at home rather than importing them from abroad. For example, as a giant country with many diverse real resources, China has developed significant, significantly simply by increasing internal trade, as the United States did, by hook or by crook for centuries. As one uh, would expect, the Chinese government has also severely limited the role of uh, finance, insurance, and real estate in the industry process. While MMT certainly does not have all the answers, it can be a useful tool in untangling the knots that all of us, the United States, the advanced West and developing world are entangled in. To reform the global trade order, the U.S. must take the largest strides in making it happen. In many ways, it has the fur uh, furthest to go. This doesn't mean winning or losing a trade war. It simply means recognizing that I, what I hope this chapter has demonstrated, trade is not about competition among countries, but about power relationships among specific interests within specific countries. Indeed, if we want a world this, that is safe for everyday people and the planet, we need to think a little less about trade war and start envisioning something a little more like trade's peace. First off, we have to stop treating trade as something that we beat other countries at by running a trade surplus. 
one country's surplus is another country's trade deficit. So by de definition, not everyone can win in that way at once, but it does follow that the deficit country has to sustain real economic loss if it, if it gets to its policy's major threat. The Trumpian approach to trade creates strife and zero-sum race to the bottom over two few global available jobs. Already, President Trump's tariffs have failed to revive American manufacturing, raised prices for U.S. consumers, and bided retaliation from China and contributed to the slowdown in the global economy, all in subservience to the trade deficit myth. Instead, we must recognize that U.S. government can simply uh, supply all the dollars our domestic private sector needs to reach full employment, and it can up supply all the dollars the rest of the world needs to build up their reserves and protect their trade flows. Instead of using its currency uh, hegemon status to mobilize global resources for its own narrow interests, the U.S. could lead the effort to mobilize resources for a global Green New Deal, keeping interest rates low and stable to, stable to promote global economic tranquility. Obviously, the U.S. and other advanced countries will, with high degrees of monetary sovereignty, can run their own job guarantee programs, but what about middle-income and developing countries? Can Mexico, for instance, implement a job guarantee and end some of this human suffering? Perhaps, when it comes to direct job creation, uh, history suggests developing countries may face fewer barriers than international elites say they do. For example, Argentina is usually cast as a poster child of financial problems, but during the country's inflation crisis in 2001, uh, Buenos Aires dramatically shifted to a domestically oriented growth strategy. First, it stopped pegging its exchange rate and hoarding U.S. dollars. Instead, policymakers chose to default on foreign debt and invest in their own people. Argentina then created a massive job, a direct job creation program that guaranteed work for poor, head, poor heads of households. As MT economists L. Randall Ray and Pavlina Ternova reported, Plan Jevis and Javas de Haga, uh, dis, okay, Plan for Unemployment, unemployed male and female heads of households, uh, created jobs for 2 million participants, roughly 13% of the, of the labor force, compromised mostly of women and com comprised mostly of women. The participants focused on community-based projects like gardening, uh, re re renovation of social uh, centers, running food kitchens, or teaching classes on public land, or public health, excuse me. This program, which helped uh, Argentina avoid many of the problems associated with reliance on foreign capital, perhaps proves a clue, a clue as to how we can all move forward in, more, in a more prosperous, sustainable, and peaceful planet. Ultimately, as uh, Ternova has suggested, will need to something like a global job guarantee. As I, written, as I write this book, the International Labor Organization estimates that almost 200 million people around the world are involuntarily unemployed. Export-led growth may be, uh, may be framed as an employment policy for various countries 
but it rarely succeeds. Moreover, we need a preventive full employment policy and arrangements that avoids accepting unemployment as natural in the first place. Employment should be a human right as environment and as envisioned by the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, not something that just floats in the wind of global market forces. The United States can't run domestic policy for the rest of the world's governments, but we can run the dominant currency in a way that makes the global whole employment something everyone could um, actually achieve. With decent jobs guaranteed for all, workers can engage in a public-led industrial policy aimed at producing sustainable infrastructure and wider array of public services. Uh, closer to home, when, our cons- uh, when one considers the desperate living standards of Mexico vis-a-vis the United States, it is hard to make a case that Mexico has taken advantage of its trade relationship with the U.S., as Trump has argued. Unlike China and Japan, Mexico has often followed militant neoliberal reforms proposed by the United States and the international organizations. As part of NAFTA, for example, Mexico lowered barriers to U.S. and Canadian financial capital and perhaps even more importantly, agricultural products. Although many U.S. companies picked up their manufacturing jobs and took them south to the border, the influx of U.S. farm products into Mexico, especially corn, displaced millions of rural Mexican workers and that drove many of them to cross the borders for jobs in the United States. This brings us to question of so-called free trade agreements, which will need to be rethought from the ground up. Okay, I'm going to end it there. I only have five minutes. I'm not really sure how long this part of the chapter goes, so I'm going to leave it at that. If you liked what I said, if you liked the story, or if you liked the book that I'm reading, uh, please subscribe to this um, to this uh, podcast by going to uh, anchor.fm slash socialist talking or just by um, hitting uh, support and I believe that will give you an option of uh, supporting for a dollar, supporting for four ninety nine, supporting for like I think uh, nine bucks or something like that. I would suspect you would go for a 99 cent one that is more economically sound right now, especially in, in, this, in this economic environment. Uh, but I do appreciate you listening. I Again, I will be uh, on before we are many talking about MMT um, and I'll be on there the, the duration of the show I think it's like a two-hour show I'm not sure about that but that's what I think um, anyway I uh, also go to my YouTube channel I just put up a new uh, live stream uh, the first I tried to do it once and it got cut off my internet try and try it again and the one thing that I was I was talking about in the beginning of it was the abortion um, case that's going to, going forward uh, to Supreme Court in uh, Mississippi and I got cut off I'm not sure that's the timing or what but anyway uh, that was the last thing I mentioned on this on this uh, recent one so uh, thanks for listening um, tune in to For We Are Many uh, podcast both on YouTube and Facebook and uh, watch me uh, answer whatever questions I can and as many uh, right answers I can as far as uh, MMP and what my thoughts are and uh, what I've learned from it thus far, but uh, anyway, I will I will be uh, on later on. But talking financially, uh, my uh, my take on today's financial news and 
and everything else in between. Uh, thanks for listening and support the channel with 99 cents or go to my paypal.me slash capital leftist capital GAP network and donate whatever you want or you can also buy merchandise from me. You can go to um, on Teespring, look up uh, Conversation with the Socialist, buy a t-shirt, bag, cup, whatever. Uh, and also if you want something from the GPS brand, go to the same website but look up GPS and it should show everything between the same thing but uh, Conversation with the Socialist uh, has. Anyway, thanks for listening. Peace out for now and I'll be talking to you, I'll be talking financially here shortly. Peace out for now.